I'm Dan Schifrin, host of The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. I'm here today with Francesco Spagnolo, curator of collections of the Magnus Collection of Jewish Art and Life at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Francesco. Thank you, Dan. At the Magnus right now, there is an exhibition that you've curated called Case Study Number 2, The Inventory Project, which explores, among other things, the role of inventory as a practice of modern Jewish life. This feels a little bit like a meta-exhibition as well as an exhibition itself. Yeah, it is a meta-exhibition. It's an exhibition that, as it often is the case, comes out of an idea but also comes out of a, a circle of ideas and uh, that have been rotating between New York and Berkeley for the last couple of years. It starts out of the research of Jeffrey Chandler, who's a professor of um, Jewish studies at Rutgers University, and who is who starts his uh, career actually as an archivist at YIVO, at, at the Institute for Jewish Research. Uh, and Jeffrey has been researching the, the role, the elusive role, but omnipresent role of uh, list-making practices and inventories in Jewish life. He came to Berkeley as a visiting scholar maybe two, three years ago, and um, a mutual friend and colleague, Barbara Kishima Gimblet, said, why don't you go and speak with Francesco, who's doing some interesting things with archives, and I was playing with archives and putting them on in social media at a time where it was still considered risky business. I was putting archives on Flickr and and uh, sort of reverting the paradigms of dust, dusty archives into something else. The, the idea behind it is actually that of using the collection of the Magnus, which is you know, one of the largest uh, uh, Jewish museum collections in the world, to use it as a bit as a playground for scholars and for ideas to be played out. Uh, so with uh, Jeffrey, we took this uh, notion of lists and this making across the collection. We spent a couple of weeks just opening drawers and uh, opening boxes and going through folders and and sort of searching anything that we felt could relate to the practice of list making. But what is list making is probably the, the interesting thing. It's uh, in the case of, of, of the Jews seems to be a practice that uh, not only is omnipresent but is also very charged. Um, there are lists that are worn as amulets, uh, including the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And then there are lists, are, you know, is, lists are by definition open, open-ended. You start a list, but you don't know when you'll finish it. So it's an excellent way to chart diaspora, we find. The other thing that happened with this exhibition I feel is uh, quite important is that we really uh, went through the collection in as a cross-medium way as possible. Uh, when Jeffrey Chandler started researching the, the collection of the Magnus, he was going very paper-based in, in his approach. He was thinking about books and, and documents and, uh, well, pushed him around a little bit. And so we, we went into three-dimensional objects and all kinds of different ways in which lists are present. An example of a three-dimensional list? Well, there are a couple of interesting examples. One is actually in the form of a book, but it's not really a book. At the turn of the 20th century, uh, visitors to the Holy Land would come back home, whether it was Europe or the United States, with a little souvenir book that was uh, not really a book. I mean, it, was, it presented itself as a book. It was bound in, in olive wood, native olive wood of the Holy Land. Probably the olives were actually taken from somewhere else, but it was sold as such. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the wood would be carved or or inlaid and spe always spelled in Jerusalem on, on the cover, and then inside was a collection of uh, pressed flowers from the Holy Land, often accompanied by little depictions of views of the 
of the place. So they would they would go home with these things. Well, that's that's a way to inventory through flowers and and sort of postcard like views to inventory a place like the Holy Land and take a piece of the Holy Land with you uh, into into the diaspora into the the, the wider world. Um, other three dimensional lists were actual amulets that are were worn either on on people's bodies or they would be plastered on on somebody's home or even more importantly uh, hung by the bed of a newborn child to protect him or her from uh, well the dangers of especially in the past the dangers of, of uh, child mortality of infant mortality uh, so we have these amulets that can be made of paper or but they also can be made of uh, of silver other metals and or carved wood and often these amulets have lists of uh, protective angels that are just names lists of names but these names all mean something and all have a very important and great power protective power or sometimes like in a case of uh, one amulet uh, Persian amulet that we used in the exhibition has a list of like all the Kabbalistic names of God which are a lot there are lot lots of those names that's some heavy-duty protection to have all oh the yeah different absolutely names. yeah, yeah. You know, as we as a culture kind of zorch further into the 21st century and go further into this digital landscape, I mean, I think about lists. Um, all of my lists are digital now, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you if you were to do this in 10 years, 15 years, mm-hmm. I wonder what the landscape of, of the inventories of the list would look like. You know, in a way, this list research started with the list of lists, which is a collection database. And part of the mm. work that we've been doing is how to inventory um, museum collections in a database. And there, too, we've been sort of like game-changing, I think, because we really worked on integrating different approaches of archives, library, museums, which are um, universes that typically don't really fit together. So we're kind of, kind of cutting across and, uh, and really studying how to integrate archival approaches with um, the study of material culture through lists, through databases. Uh, so we started with that. That was how we, we began mm. researching. So I guess it was already digital mm. to begin with, even though we dealt with real objects and real artifacts. You know, um, when, when you visit the uh, the Magnus Collection um, just off campus at Berkeley, one of the things that you notice is um, there's a room in the middle, which is where um, a lot of objects are stored. And uh, it's transparent, meaning it's you can see I can see you when I'm mm-hmm. there working inside. Mm-hmm. I've been told it's called visible storage. That's what uh, that's I've the, been the term of our term, visi- yeah, visible term, storage. Yeah. Um, it's just an interesting kind of metaphor for I think what uh, what you're doing at the collection, and also maybe the role of archival material, how it's kind of coming out of storage and becoming because of the access you can have mm-hmm. digitally, becoming something that people can use. I think what we had in mind in designing this was the idea of being immersed in the collection. And uh, so its storage had to be visible in order to be immersed in that. So when you walk in, you you have an exhibition space which is contained between two glass walls. And behind those walls, you see shelves and boxes and more boxes and piles of things and things hanging on walls. It's actually probably my favorite, standing at the center of that, it's probably my favorite uh, spot in the the whole uh, new Magnus facility. Not so much because you see the storage, but I think because you are... I hope you're pushed to experience culture as a multi-layered reality. You see that culture is not a directional thing. You, it's it's a, it's different from your classic museum experience that has like a labyrinth or like a race, like a rat race, has, has a beginning and an end, right? You begin, you follow directions, you go here, you go there, and then eventually you go out. In, in that case, you just walk in 
and you are, and you are immersed in this multiple layers of very diverse materials, whether they're books or manuscripts or paintings or objects, three-dimensional objects, etc. So I think that that's what I really like about it, the, that the idea that culture is not a one-way street and that it is not mm, told in only one way. It, it's an it's a accumulation of narratives. You talked about going through drawers, opening things up, and seeing what's there. I'm wondering about um, rummaging through objects and materials, um, looking to see what's there and looking to see what patterns emerge versus having an idea and then looking for the materials that support that or fill that in. Well, I guess the fun of working with uh, with a collection of this type is that... Uh, uh, you can have lots of ideas, but then you're confronted with the reality or the materiality of, uh, of culture and cultural heritage, and your ideas change or new ideas come up. So there is a value in both. We actually went in with an idea in mind, let's find lists. And then we discover that our ideas about lists mm. could be changed, could be, could be modified by what we were looking for. You know, a trend in museums um, these days is for uh, an artist or artist to go into um, you know, the archives of an institution and go into the storeroom um, given, you know, free reign by a curator or director mm-hmm. and just say, see what, you f- see what you find here, see what strikes your interest, see what you can create or curate out of, out of what's there. Actually, the Magnus, uh, I believe, was one of the institutions that pioneered this with uh, my colleague Ale Fimova, who's the director and uh, who was for many years the, the chief curator at the Magnus. And uh, she really encouraged, she created an exhibition program called Revisions, uh, and she invited a variety of artists to come in and sort of, again, play with the collection. And so all kinds of byproducts uh, mm. uh, came out of this. Uh, I think Amy Burke uh, uh, matched her own family textiles with um, old uh, Passover tablecloths, all stained with wine and food from Eastern Europe. Or, or um, Larry Abramson created the, the skyline of an ideal Jerusalem made all of uh, silver objects of Judaica. Uh, they were kind of piled up in in really unexpected way and so on. So I think it started that way, and it pro- I think it's fair to say that what we're doing now is we're extending that approach also to scholars so that the, the collection becomes not just a place where scholars study and learn and write papers or books or whatever it is that they do, but also come and play. An approach to, to culture and cultural history is through layers, the other one is two fragments. I mean, as in, you know, as the keeper of a of a of a cultural heritage collection, we are dealing with uh, as keepers of those collections. We're dealing with fragments all the time, and uh, those are the fragments of the past. And we keep reorganizing them into the present, and we keep reinterpreting and re-experiencing the past that way. Nay, I wanted to mention, um, you know, this very famous find, uh, the Cairo Geniza, 100, 120 years ago, um, in uh, in Egypt. The Jews had these places where they would put holy books and sometimes other things in, in Hebrew so that they wouldn't throw them away at kind of this mm-hmm. kind of a strange purgatory. What I really knew about the Cairo Geniza, which is that among the various fragments, it also contained the earliest musical notations of Jewish sources. It was the, the, the earliest Jewish music not, in notation comes from the Cairo hmm. Geniza. And it's an amazing story that has a little bit of a sort of an ethnomusicological quest of an Indiana Jones and uh, all kinds of battles among scholars to interpret them. But uh, it's a story that starts in southern Italy in the 12th century. 
And um, a monk, a Christian monk, traveled all the way to Baghdad and in Baghdad wrote a prayer book and signed it and added his bio- autobiography. And his hand was recognized also in this in this um, music manuscript. So he was a he was a Christian monk. He knew how to write music. Jews, Jews did not write music at that time, <laughs> and um, and so we know that he was the author of these uh, few musical fragments <laughs> with Hebrew text with um, <laughs> um, sort of Christian neumes, Christian notes, and and Hebrew texts. <laughs> That's not a part of the story I knew. <laughs> so that's how that's how I I became exposed to the to the Geniza a long long time ago, and then with with Peter and Adina we we talked about this and and we were trying to at some point even figure out how to include those um, the, those music notations in, in in the book or in their presentations around. But uh, uh, the Geniza is a fascinating uh, well the the Cairo Geniza is a fascinating story and the notion of Geniza. There is a, at least a double component of the attitude towards uh, uh, saving trash in, 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 in Jewish uh, history. On, on the one hand, um, texts that cannot be used anymore um, are put in, uh, in storage for, to, to just leave them there and let them decay. But also texts that cannot be used, not cannot be used anymore, just as simply cannot be used, meaning uh, texts that should be censored cannot be destroyed if they're written in, in Hebrew. Uh, so those two have to be preserved, hidden, but mm. preserved. So what you find there in, in a Geniza are also documents that were not supposed to be seen. So you, you can find in a, in, in a Geniza apoc- apocryphal texts and, and other other works that are not, uh, they're deemed not, uh, not good for public consumption. So you, you find all kinds of hidden things. Just imagining for a moment our DNA is a kind of an archive. We have these... Um, genes, most of which are not useful or never turn on, but it is a kind of uh, accumulation of genes that have been in our collective biological system for millions of years. Um, are, there, are there other kinds of archives that exist out in the world that we don't necessarily think of as archives, but we should? Well, I don't know. I think there are like elusive archives, archives that seem to be archives and are not. One of my favorite examples is, is actually uh, YouTube. It seems to be such a ubiquitous uh, uh, form of archiving uh, anything. You know, it's used for images, but it's, for instance, also used for sounds. I, I love going on YouTube and finding old recordings that, uh, uh, because there's really not, not a good way to share sounds online. So people use video. They just put an image there or a slideshow, and then they put old recordings there. So you find all these rare early 20th century <laughs> recordings on, on YouTube. I love doing that. Uh, but the, the thing about YouTube is that uh, some days those um, materials are there and then they're not anymore. So they they tend to pop up and disappear. So it's even an, though, it's an unstable archive. Yeah, so you, sometimes you think, oh, yeah, I can just go back and listen to that again or use it for this or that purpose. And then you, you find out that they are not there anymore. So that uncertainty, uh, I, I guess it's inherent to archives too. I mean, many archives in the history or think about the Library of Alexandria were destroyed. So... <laughs> Uh, I guess my, uh, my, my main preoccupation is, uh, is actually how, how much uh, is uh, forgotten through archives. Mm-hmm. In a way, archives are a device to forget things and mm-hmm. just to store some and, and avoid others. That's why the Geniza is such a, a different paradigm in some ways. It's not really an archive. It's not meant to be an archive. It's just a, sort of a place for decay. Something that I find very interesting and somewhat inspiring about uh, working at the Magnus is that... Uh, it's kind of at the 
edge or at the end of um, European civilization. But if you think about all these uh, great European minds who fled Europe because of the Nazis and came, arrived to California and to Hollywood and and whatnot, and, and in a way, the, the archives that have been created here are, are following that trajectory. Um, people, families, individuals, uh, sometimes amazing intellectuals or artists who arrived to California because that was the last shore they could reach, the place they could go. Uh, as far away from everything as, as possible and, and stay there. So in some ways what you find that the Magnus is has also this dimension of what's been almost like, it's, at times I feel washed up on the shores of, uh, of uh, California. So it has that uh, dimension of Geniza. In, in, in some ways. It's not, not just a, a self-selecting and, and um, predetermined kind of archive. It's, uh, it's, it's at times an occasional archive. And, I, I, and probably that's true of, of many archives in any, in any form or shape. Um, they kind of pop up because people have this crazy idea that the past should be preserved. And uh, I think it's important to, to keep asking ourselves why should the past be preserved. <laughs> I learned this the, the hard way coming to California. I remember a student when I was teaching UC Santa Cruz who was like, I don't, I don't want to know. He said in class, he like really burst, come in rage and said, I don't want to know about the past. I don't want to know where my family came from. I'm, I'm just here now. And, and that was a, a, an attitude that I never really encountered. It really was like almost like a cold shower, a huge culture shock for me. Um, but but I, I'm starting to appreciate that attitude as well. Hmm. You know, there, there, is something, uh, there is something refreshing about uh, wanting to do away with the past. Um, I was raised, and I think you know, all, we have all been raised with, uh, with uh, uh, you know, the idea of holding the past in a very, very important uh, place and I think fresh approaches, fresh looks, and even dismissive looks can can at times be very, very important and very generative. Yeah, I actually grew up in a in a city that doesn't have, I mean, has an illustrious past, but doesn't have a lot of past visible. I grew up in Milan, which was fifty percent of which was destroyed by Allies bombings during World War II, so a lot of its uh, architectural past was lost then. And um, a, a lot of rubbish, a lot of ruins were, were created uh, at that point. Uh, but still, it is a city where you can go and find the remainings of a Roman circus or, you know, medieval churches and or nunneries. And I had a friend, actually, a Syrian Jewish writer who for a long time lived in a, in a medieval building and, and there was a nunnery. You know, his living room was the was the <laughs> was the cafeteria of the medieval nunnery, and 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 he lived he he slept in the room of the mother superior. <laughs> uh, so so yes, of course, the past is very much not only in your face; it's under your feet. You you walk on it every every day when you live in a place like Italy. It's uh, it's part of your DNA if if you want to to think about it that way in ways that um, are clearly not the same not just in the United States, but especially in California. I remember my first uh, weekend in San Francisco when we moved to San Francisco and walking around Golden Gate Park and somebody pointing out to me that there was something that had been there since before 1906, before the earthquake. And sure, I could appreciate the, uh, the, the, the fact that something had survived the earthquake, but uh, 1906 didn't just do it for me somehow. Hmm. 
Um, I, I guess now I'm sort of reassessing things. A decade in California will do that to anyone, I mm. think. Uh, but still, the, the attitude to the past is necessarily different because the past is, uh, it, you have too much of it if you grow up in Europe. There's just too much of it. You don't know what to do with it. Uh, uh, you visit Rome and and Rome, pretty much any Italian city, uh, stores in its uh, uh, warehouses more past than you can possibly see as a tourist. Uh, a lot of it is just not visible. And the same is true of archives. They don't know where to put anything anymore. And they haven't been able to find where to put things for a long time. So it's a very different attitude. The past is not a rare, rare item. It's, hmm. uh, is, uh, is actually there. you have just simply too much of it. So you say your goal as a multidisciplinary scholar is, in quotes, intersecting textual, visual, and musical cultures. And mm-hmm. I think that's used as a verb. Um, and I'm curious what it means you know, to actively try to intersect things as opposed to, let's say, working at the intersection of different genres mm-hmm. is uh, I think uh, the what what that may mean uh, even though I, I think I wrote that uh, bio <laughs> but what I think that may mean uh, has to do with um, never being satisfied with one individual me- medium and always uh, looking for connections that are beyond the monolinguistic forms of intertextuality. So n- never living only within verbal text, always thinking about what you hear and never, and once you hear something, never just think about what you hear, about what, but also about what you, what you see or what you perceive. And, and um, I was, I was, um, I grew up uh, studying philosophy in Milan in a very strict uh, phenomenological school, and I think that pays off. In other words, you always question um, your perceptions uh, uh, from the start, and I keep doing that. That's, I think, what fascinates me about working in, 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 in the collection of the Magnus. It's such a multimedium, such a hybrid uh, collection. It really covers all, all sorts of dimensions, and um, I think that's what I'm trying to teach it when I work with students, when I when I teach at the University of California, um, to to think in a multi way and to think of history and also of life in general, uh, in its uh, complexity. And uh, uh, that that's uh, sometimes it's a lot of work. <laughs> it would be nice yeah. to just, but but yeah, I guess that that intersecting has to do with that. Mm-hmm. Ne- never being satisfied with anything. Um, you're teaching a class now at uh, at Berkeley um, about um, ritual and performance of ritual. Mm-hmm. It's called performing texts, and it's uh, very much about Jewish liturgy, which is something that fascinates me in so many ways. I I grew up in a very secular family, and eventually discovered. Uh, uh, liturgy and Jewish liturgy, but it took me a while to get adjusted to it. And it never ceased to, since I found out about it, it never ceased to fascinate me. And it's basically the idea is that uh, uh, synagogue life, what happens inside a synagogue, it's like a theater in which all kinds of uh, social, uh, cultural issues are very much acted out. And they're acted out through text. Sometimes these texts are very old uh, in various languages. It's acted out through sounds and song. 
and music in general. And it's also acted out through ritual objects, body language, architecture. So what I, what I study with my students is really the interaction of all these uh, dimensions. Uh, there is a, a, a little object that's used in Jewish ritual. And some, some Jews call it, call it a yad, which means hand. It's a little pointer that's used to follow the text of the Torah when it's chanted. This, this is a fairly old practice in Judaism, right? Uh, when it's chanted in the, in the synagogue. And it's used both to follow the lines and to follow the text, but also it's used to touch the scrolls of the Torah, which cannot be touched by a bare hand. Uh, so it's been invented to fulfill this, uh, this function. Well, we notice that not all of these pointers, uh, but many of them are made in a shape of a hand with a pointing finger. And what we realized in class discussion was that uh, um, in a way, this, this object really embodies the action that is forbidden. So it is a space between. Uh, it is uh, in, the, in the performance of the duties of, of reading the Torah, which is a very, very important duty in, in the Jewish religion. The uh, fact that it's uh, forbidden to touch the text is staged. <laughs> and so through an object, people actually do touch the text, or at <laughs> least they stage themselves touching uh, the text, and in a way being, they stage themselves being subversive against the religious authority <laughs> that tells them how to do things. So um, that's, that's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking <laughs> in this class, we're looking for these little, uh, this little scent of, of a subversion that is staged at the very core of religious practice. Mm -hmm. And the idea that religious practice can contain that sort of dissent. And in the, in the crevices of religious practice, you have um, a resistance to authority is, is absolutely fascinating. Francesco Spagnolo, thank you so much. Oh, thank you.